You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. I've got a big announcement for you today. It's officially sweater weather. Congrats, we made it. Welcome to church. If you haven't met me before, my name's Luke Hall, and I serve as one of the hosts here at the church. Uh, Providence is a community of believers formed around a simple vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. And to that end, we teach from the scriptures each and every week because we believe they've been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. We're currently in a book series in the book of Mark titled King and Crown, where we've been looking at the life of Jesus as well as how our culture tries to define themselves outside of him. If you have your Bibles with you today, would you please turn with me to Mark chapter 14, this is 53 to 72. Um, and if you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. We do have some in the seat pockets in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us today. Again, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 72. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priests. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness about him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You were with that Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly are you one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Providence, this is a word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here. And we really hope that you enjoy yourself. Uh, Like Luke said, we're working through the book of Mark. And uh, I've got a lot of work to do. i got a little bit of extra work to do. Because my brother in Christ, Eric Ripley, last week, 
said, I'm only one man and I'm not going to finish this sermon. And so I got to, we read 52 through 73, but I've got to start at 43, okay? And, and then on top of that, the Lord helped me, and I'm not bitter about this, but I do want to talk a little bit about something that's gone on in the world over the last week and make mention of it so that we can pray uh, particularly about that issue. Most of you know, last Saturday, during the Jewish Sabbath on a feast day in Israel, Hamas, the political and, and terrorist organization uh, that is in Gaza, attacked across the border of Gaza, and, and particularly on Israeli civilians. The last report that I read, 1,300 people were killed, uh, over 2,000 wounded. There's some really awful images circulating, rape, murder of women, children, even infants. Uh, it's a very, very, very tragic uh, situation. As is always true, you're always trying to sift through what's false in reports and news and kind of working your way through that. But just taking the confirmed photos and videos, the situation's pretty clear. There were some really evil and grotesque things that were perpetrated on the nation of Israel last Saturday. And then over the last week, the response to that, the military response to that, has led to uh, even more deaths on both sides now, well up over 3,000 people. Um, Now, as Americans, we are often kind of removed from the geopolitical um, issues like this. The reason for that is both geographical, you know, we kind of big ocean, you know, on either side of us to keep us from those things. The second is that we've lived in relative peace for, uh, for generations, and so we get a little bit, you know, it's kind of the running joke. If you ever travel, people are like, you know, Americans, they never even know what's going on. And the reason for that is, you know, like if you drive across Texas, um, it'll take you a pretty long time. My wife and I just got back from vacation and we drove to Arkansas and most of the trips in Texas, you know, like we didn't ever cross any state lines or anything. But if we had been driving, let's say in Europe, you'd have crossed over like a few countries. And so it's much easier to watch the news. Like, oh, this is happening in this country, this country. Like if something happens in San Antonio, we know about it. But rarely if something happens across the world, we're we're just not as attuned to it. So I do want to say, suffice it to say, instability and tragic events like this one occur in the Middle East and in particular in this region a lot. However, why is it important that we mention it now and pray about it now? Well, there's a few reasons, and I just want to mention them before we pray. First is, it was the worst attack on Israel in 50 years. Um, So since 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, this is the worst that's happened. So 50 years is a pretty significant long time. And it was uniquely evil and deadly to civilians. That's another unique thing about this attack. It was on a music festival, 260 deaths and accounts of multiple rapes of civilian women. Uh, at a music festival. So it was really dark. Um, Number two, it threatens this, obviously, the conflict like this will threaten uh, a larger conflict with allied countries being drawn into it. We need to be praying about that. This is something that we often think, well, that's happening over there. It's not really impacting us. No, this is something that very well could uh, impact multiple countries, including our own. Number three, there's a deeper sense of care that Christians Uh, carry toward Israel because these are the people that received the covenant of the promise from Abraham and the prophecies about Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ was a Jew. And so there's this affinity that we have for Israel uh, that's rooted in the scriptures. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans 9, 10, and 11, but in Romans he says, even though Paul had many pretty rabid disagreements with the Jews when he was teaching about Christ because they rejected the Messiah. 
He says he loved them so much as his brother and kinsmen that he wished he himself were cut off from Christ if they might just be grafted in. He loved them. He wanted them to receive these promises, but he knew that those promises came through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so as Christians, we carry that as well. Of course, there's always this awareness for Christians that there's prophetic significance in the happenings around Israel. So we see these things and we say, oh, this is serious. And then maybe most prominently, going back to the very promise of Abraham in Genesis, this conflict, so what makes it different than something, let's say, like Russia uh, and Ukraine? Well, this conflict particularly includes uh, two half-brothers that we read about in the book of Genesis. Abraham was promised by God that he would have a son and that through that son, the nations of the earth would be blessed, and the, the land that he stepped on would be given to this son. There was a big, massive promise given. And as they grew older, Abraham and Sarah began to disbelieve this promise, and Sarah said, you know, I'm, I'm barren, I'm old, I'm not going to have a baby for you. Maybe just take my maidservant, Hagar. And so Abraham did, and a boy named Ishmael was born. And, of course, God told Abraham he was going to give him a son by Sarah, and he did, and that boy's name was Isaac. But both of these children were blessed in different ways. God sends this blessing onto Hagar, but he says that, yes, Ishmael also will have great descendants, but that he'll be a wild donkey of a man and that he will fight against his brothers in every way. And then on the flip side, that Isaac would be the child of promise and that he would be blessed. Interestingly, both children ended up having 12 sons. And the conflict that you see between Israel right now and, let's say, um, what's happening in both Palestine and the larger Arab countries is a conflict over a lineage of Isaac and Ishmael. So we're not just seeing um, these you know, little squabbles between nations. We're seeing an ancient battle um, that God has prophetically promised would continue until the Lord Jesus returns and sets things right. Lastly, before I pray, there are... Both, uh, both in Gaza and, and in Israel, there's only about 2% Christians. But brothers and sisters, these are our brothers and sisters, and we need to be praying for them. Right now, particularly in Gaza, they're blocked in. There's been a blockade on either side of the border for, I think, since 2014 or maybe a little longer than that. I could be wrong about that date. But now it's very serious, and, and even Hamas itself, some of the very uh, evil and wicked leaders of Hamas are blocking their own people from leaving and trying to exit the south into Egypt, forcing these people to be there as bombs are raining down on them in the hopes that it would keep some of their soldiers protected because so, if Israel bombs, let's say, a civilian group of a hospital or something where the Hamas may be hiding, then they can go into the international news and say, look how evil and bad Israel is. And it's a very dark situation, but there are missionaries there, there are Christians there who cannot get out, and we need to pray. There are also missionaries and Christians in Israel, and we need to pray for them. And so I want to mention how should we pray. Well, first of all, obviously we want to pray for peace in Israel. But as Christians, we know that that's not predominantly going to be a political scenario, but God is going to have to bring this peace. So we ask God, not that he might not use human means, but we know that the Lord is going to have to move to bring peace. Uh, We want to pray for comfort to the afflicted. We want to pray for God to judge righteous, righteously, to bring to heal those who seek out malice, hatred, division, and evil. But most of all, as Christians, we want to pray for revival, both in our nation and across the world. And here's why I say that. We want to pray for revival in our nation, not only for the reasons I've mentioned for a couple of years now, but also because we want a 
nation like ours to have voice of moral credibility and moral clarity, to be able to call evil evil and good good and, and, and not to have this smarmy, uh, halfway cocked uh, responses to things like this because we're you know, situating ourselves politically, but just to have a moral fortitude. We, and we, we're not going to have that if we continue as a nation to deny transcendent truth that comes from God. It just isn't going to happen. But we want to pray for a revival across the globe because we want people to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ because there's only two options geopolitically. And in particular, let's use this conflict. Number one, either these two countries will continue to fight to rule over the other or they'll bow their knee to Jesus Christ and let Christ rule over them. But there will continue to be, and not just with these two nations, but with every nation, there will constantly be combatants and battles about who rules over who unless we rule or are ruled, rather, by the Lord Jesus Christ and submit ourselves to him. So we need revival and reformation in nations, but it must start in the church. We need revival of moral clarity, moral credibility, and courage, strength in Christ, humility toward Christ, and confidence through Christ. There's this old Chinese proverb. They don't know whether it is a blessing, which is what they call it, or a curse, because it's a tongue-in-cheek saying. But many of the men would bless their enemies by saying, I pray your children live in interesting times. And of course, interesting times are not always good times. If he said good times, it'd be different. We live, friends, in interesting times. But the good news is that the way that we honor the Lord Jesus Christ in our everyday lives does not change into a new plan when we live in interesting times. It's that self-same way through the Lord Jesus Christ that we can honor God in character and in fortitude in interesting times. The best way to serve your neighbors is always going to be the best way to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are one and the same. So Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he gives his disciples this commission, go therefore to the nations and do what? Make disciples of the nations. Tell the nations, Christ is king. Let us bow our knee to Christ who has given amnesty. And so maybe the most important thing I want to pray for is I want to pray for the conversion of Palestinians. I want to pray for the conversions of our Jewish brothers and sisters who need to be brought back into the fold of God and receive the covenant of Christ, their king. That is their Messiah. And they, perhaps their forefathers, maybe they know this for a fact, have missed their Messiah. And they were the ones on the opposite side of Paul arguing with him. But friends, the extending hands of the Lord Jesus, the nail-scarred hands of the covenantal Messiah is reaching out to them. And I pray that the Jews would come back into the covenant. Paul says this in Romans, uh, Romans 11. He says, if the partial hardening of Israel resulted in a glory like the Gentiles being grafted in, how much greater will the glory be if they are received back and restored to the covenant? So we need to pray for that. And we need to pray that exact same thing for Palestinians and for the Arab world, that they might know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to pray not just for our missionary brothers and sisters, but we need to pray that more laborers would be sent out into the field. The harvest is white. The laborers are few. So I want to pray for two things. I want to pray for the situation in Israel, and then I want to pray the Lord helps me this morning as we go to God's word, the privilege we have, that we take this as a privilege, that we get to come freely, and that the Lord would speak to us and help me as I try to work through both my sermon and a third of Eric's. In the, <laughs> I told Eric I was going to give him a hard time about that. 
in all honesty, he had a really, he had a lot of texts too. It's just a joke. But let me pray for us and ask the Lord to help. You'll bow your heads. Father, thank you, my God, that we have the privilege to come freely before your word without fear of consequences. We lift up our brothers and sisters across the world that are under circumstances that we ourselves could not imagine for our own children. And so we ask, my God, would you be the God of all comfort to our brothers and sisters in Gaza and in Israel underneath this terrible situation? Would you protect them and guard them, my God? Have your hand over your children. We pray for the peace in Israel. We pray for the restoration of the Jewish people into the covenant that comes through the blood, not of lambs or bulls or goats, but the blood that came through the one and only and true Messiah, you, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that our Jewish brothers and sisters will be welcomed back into that fold for the promises came first to them. And so we pray that you would send missionaries into the harvest, that they would hear the gospel preached and receive it. We pray for Palestinian people, that they would hear the words of Paul, that even if an angel from heaven comes and delivers any other gospel, let that angel, let that man be accursed that receives it. We pray that they would instead receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true God, and in obedience to him, find life everlasting. My God, we know there are many things that are too lofty, too high for us to understand. This situation is filled with history, filled with so much that we partially understand and then don't understand. But we trust you and we put our stake in the ground. Lord Jesus Christ, we entrust it to you. Help us to live our lives in a way that pleases you and to proclaim the truth. That there be revival in our nation that we might be a voice of moral clarity to point to King Jesus. Use us for that end. Use us to that end. And my God, for our brothers and sisters that are there, we pray you would care for them. And now, fathers, we open your word. We ask all the needs that we have, both known to us and unknown to us. Would you meet those needs now? Minister to us by the power of your word. Open our hearts, minds, eyes, and ears to hear and receive from you. And may our worship and the meditation of our hearts this morning be pleasing and honorable and true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get kicked off because we have a lot less time than I intended. All right, verse 43. Now remember, we're coming on the back end of the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just gotten done praying and withstanding the temptation that came in the garden. Just as our first father Adam failed in the garden, Christ has reigned victorious in the garden. He has withstood the temptation to walk away from this great suffering, and he's going headlong into it. So now, the arrest of Christ, verse 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with, a cra- and with him a crowd with swords and with clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We are going to be discussing the trial of Jesus Christ on trial with the Sanhedrin. This is a religious court, a religious trial that will happen with the Jews. What you're going to notice is that it's corrupt from stem to stern, and the accusations against Christ here uh, are not the same accusations that will be brought in the Roman courts because this is a dishonest and unjust trial. But here we get the chief priests and their soldiers show up to get Jesus. Verse 44. 
Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now this is key because this is setting up the climate of this entire evening is going to be extremely dark. The betrayal of Jesus Christ came through a kiss of a friend. There's a poetic injustice to that, that Christ who loved Judas, washed his feet just a night earlier, is now kissed by him to mark him for crucifixion, to mark him for trial. Verse 46, They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. you got to love this. Peter is the guy telling Mark about this account. All the other gospels tell us that Peter cut the ear off, and Peter says, Someone... One of the disciples was there and cut the guy's ear off. (laughs) It's interesting. Now, I want to say, this is key. I think it's important to where we're going to go because we're going to focus on Peter and his temptation and denials in a moment. Peter here, though, is living up to his promise. Remember what he told Jesus, I'm not letting them get you. I'm not letting them take you to the cross. I'll go to the cross with you. I'm going to fight. And so he cuts the servant of the high priest's ear off. The book of Luke actually records that Jesus tells Peter, no, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. He takes the servant of the high priest's ear, Malchus is his name, and heals it, replaces it on his head. Now, I don't know about you, if I'm a part of the arrest team, done. Like, I'm done with this whole thing. I'm like, nope, not going to be involved. But they continue on with this path, and they end up arresting Jesus anyway. Verse 48, Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Jesus points out something that's essential for us to know as we go into the trial. Namely, everything about this is unjust. Why are they arresting Jesus with swords and clubs, the same men who were just with him as he taught in the temple just days before. If they had a crime that he had committed, they could have arrested him right there. And he's not a criminal that would fight them. He's, he's asking them, why are you storming in the middle of the night into my prayer in this garden like I'm a criminal, like I would run from you? And the reason is because this is a criminal trial and Jesus isn't the criminal. The people that are putting him on trial are the criminals. This is key because what we're going to notice from here to the end of this passage is everyone, not just the Pharisees, not just the elders, not just the chief priests, not just Judas, everyone ends up under the power of darkness and fleeing Jesus. I want to read to you, this is the account of Luke. So this is Luke uh, and his account in, I think it's 20, I'll put it up there, Luke 22. This is the parallel verse, okay? Watch what Luke says. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers and the temple elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with a sword and clubs? I was with you day after day in the temple, and you did not lay your hands on me. This is the key. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, the rest of the time, I want to focus on this one theme. Spiritual attack and what we can learn from the powers of darkness in this hour of Jesus' greatest trial. I think you and I can all agree on the basis of this passage, there potentially has never been a more demonic hour and time and location than the crucifixion, trial, arrest, beating, scourging of the Lord. I want you to think about this is like a meeting of demons here. 
They're all coming together. The Bible actually tells us Satan, not a demon, not an unclean spirit, Satan entered the heart of Judas Iscariot. You ever thought of that? That seems to me to be terrifying. This is a dark moment. So I want to answer the question, what can we learn from this moment on how the enemy seeks to tempt us? Now I just want to read verses 51 and 52, not because I can add very much prophetic understanding, because there, everybody doesn't understand why this is involved. I'll give you just a little bit of what I think is happening. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's one of the only times in the Gospels this is mentioned. Now, in my unsanctified part of my mind, I was just wondering why whoever this disciple or follower is was so careless with his clothing. Okay, I'm just thinking, linen cloth only. It's like he's just hanging out in a robe with Jesus, ends up naked. But, I'm sorry, that's just how I think. But, secondarily, I think what's happening here, because people ask, is this Mark and he's talking about himself here? A young man comes, he's trying to follow too. Okay, there's a number of things that, that there's some Old Testament allusions here. You guys remember when someone was, you know, grabbed and tried to be seized and ran away without the cloak? That's the story of Joseph, isn't it? Potiphar's wife, lay with me. No, I won't. Grabs the cloak, runs away without his clothes, and then she blames him, and he ends up getting... So there's that, there's that piece that perhaps this is a, an allusion to Christ being the greater Joseph and that he takes the place of Joseph in the prisons. He's going to go unjustly to jail, but he's going to rise to the right hand of the Father, not the right hand of Pharaoh, but the right hand of the Heavenly Father. There's that side. But I also see that it seems to me that at bare minimum, we can say, um, this is further underscoring the injustice of the evening in that if most, com- most commentators are right, the linen cloth was supposed to be the robe that people had on whenever they went to sleep and they would just kind of slip it on quickly, that somebody hears the commotion and they're trying to grab this guy to make sure he doesn't tell the crowd so that the same crowds that cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, don't show up and try to stop this that's about to happen to Jesus. And so they end up grabbing this guy, and he runs away and flees naked. It's showing you the injustice of the hour at bare minimum. Now, let's read the counsel of the high priests. Verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priests. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire, And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Just as a side note, that's not what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Bible records that he said, They did not understand he was speaking of his body. This testimony says that Jesus said, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, meaning I'm going to destroy the actual physical temple. And then in three days later, I'll raise up the one made with hands. It's a lie. Jesus was talking about, you're going to crucify me and destroy this temple, and I'm going to raise it up in three days. Okay, let's keep going. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave them no answer. Obviously to fulfill the prophecy that like a lamb, he would be led to slaughter and he would not utter a word. Now, continue. 
Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And here's where Jesus answers. And Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him and say to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with many blows. Now, one of the themes in scripture that is pretty common, but we often just kind of pass over, is this idea of righteous judgment and unrighteous judgment. You see this in the Proverbs particularly. The idea of a bribe being so evil, unequal scales and unequal balances, unequal judgment, and how wicked it is. It's a, it's a heavy theme in the scriptures that we are meant to make judgments that are right and not wrong, that are good and not evil, that are holy and not wicked. It's a prominent theme. For instance, one of the Ten Commandments, commandment number nine, is actually judicial language that we've extrapolated to be more about honoring God with our speech and not lying. But the actual words are, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's more judicial language. That's talking about you not lying before a court of law in legal proceedings as a witness against someone else. Now, God set up a system in Israel that no Israelite could be condemned on any charges unless there were at least two or three witnesses that saw them do it. So you can imagine why God and why the Israelites should care so much about bearing false witness. If you get a system that's infiltrated with people that are willing to lie for money, how many innocent people are going to be killed? How, many, how much injustice is going to reign? Now, the judicial system in Israel ends up evolving over the course of the scriptures. In Exodus, you get the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law. Priests and elders are the judges. Fathers are given authorities over their house to an extent, but then there's a case law system given to Israel in order to judge wisely in situations that extend beyond the family. Later, we're going to see in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16 through 17, that God gives authority over these judges. Listen to this. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. I will come down and I'll talk with you there, Moses, and I will take some of the spirit that's on you and I'll put it on them. Now, this is a delegation of authority that's happening with 70 new elders that are going to be judges of 50s and 10s and hundreds and thousands, okay, in Israel. So Moses doesn't have to sit singularly on the seat of judgment. That is the model for the Sanhedrin that is now trying Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I give you that whole history is to say it's essential, commanded by God, that they do this a specific way and that they not fall into injustice, bribery, and partiality. Now, what, what do we see instead? Well, a couple things. Number one, they break the law because there are no charges presented against Jesus, but merely allegations that they hope to get him to confess to. So they don't say, here's why we're arresting you. No, 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 which is against their laws. They just arrest him and then bring people up to accuse him. There's no defense witnesses brought, which is another, another breaking of their law. There's no chance for Jesus to defend himself. They just bring the allegations against him in a court of law at night. At night which is illegal. Arrest him at night, trial at night. Why would they do it at night? Well, the Bible tells us in the book of John, some of the Pharisees believed in Jesus, but they were scared of the others. 
And so they did it at night so they could stack the court with their ruling against Christ. Notice everyone condemns him. We know Nicodemus most likely was a part of this group, and he went to talk to Jesus at nighttime, and he seemed to have a little different opinion about Christ. But they stack the courts in this moment against Jesus to make sure that he's condemned. Now, the entire ordeal is made clear by a very obscure scripture that you might not even know unless you were looking for it here that tells you what's happening here is false and unjust. And here, hear me, for our purposes, spiritually dark. What happens? The high priest asks Jesus, are you the son of the blessed? And he says, I am. And the high priest is so emotional, not impartial. Remember, he's, he's a judging, right? He's emotional. He's angry. He's not impartial and resigned and thoughtful and reasonable, trying to hear the evidence. He's so angry and hateful, he tears his robe. I want to read to you Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10. This is the law. He was the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. Not meant to tear the clothes, or else you have disqualified yourself. So here in this moment, we see the true high priest is on trial with the fake high priest who proves it by breaking the law in front of everyone. Now, Matthew Henry has a wonderful quote. He says, It is time to cry, help us, Lord, when the physicians of the land become its troublers, and those who are meant to be conservators of equity and peace become corruptors of both. That's what's happening here in Israel. It's an hour of darkness, as Jesus said. Now, what should we say? When a person, an individual, or a husband, or a father, or a board of people, or leaders of nations, or groups of leaders of nations— when we decide to reject the truth of God and live by lies, there is no bottom to the destruction that will inevitably ensue unless we repent. This is the key of spiritual warfare. And the serpent did it in the garden, and you need to understand it's always the same tactic to get you to agree to the lie. The serpent said, did God really say? Surely you will not die, but you'll be like God's. And he doesn't want you to be like him. And so you can eat and join in on the lie. That is what we see in this hour of darkness, perhaps the darkest in human history. It's all about joining in on the lie. Whether it be the chief priests or whether it be the scribes or whether it be the false accusers or whether it be Judas for money. In a moment, whether it be Peter himself or whether it be the guards outside who are just doing their job or whether it be the disciples who flee, everyone has to join the lie and only one stands apart from it. Now, why is that dangerous for us? Because once lies are accepted, they always multiply. If you're a parent, you know this. Your kids start lying to you. Kids, if you're in the room, you need to know when your parents are asking you questions about something that you're lying about, they already know you're lying. And you start feeling like, oh, I better, I better make up another lie. You're just digging it deep. They already know. They're just trying, to, just trying to ask these questions to draw you into the light here. Say, hey, there's a safe road exit here just to tell the truth. And when you're younger, you're just like, oh, no. They're questioning my airtight story. <laughs> it's rarely airtight, you know. When you're younger, it's like that you didn't eat the cookies, but there's chocolate all over your face. You're a teenager, and you're like, I didn't wreck the car. Someone hit me. But it's obvious that your story makes no sense. But you're like, I promise you, there was a spaceship that hit me from behind. 
God, I don't know if you've ever, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen dad, but Scully and Mulder. This is what happened to me in the middle of the night, you know, and I had this experience. So you have to lie and lie and lie and lie. Now, here's the thing, adults, we're not off the hook here. We do this too. And God is like our father who knows you're lying. And we keep on doing the justification. We just become more sophisticated. But the second piece to this is the most damning. Once lies are accepted, lies start to demand that you keep lying. That's what the hook of bribery is. Fathers, once you've decided to live according to the lie, the enemy will then emotionally blackmail you to not be a leader in your home because you are a liar and he'll remind you of it. You can't say that to your kids. What about you? You're a liar. How dare you tell your wife this or to say we're going to do this or make this moral statement. You're not a leader in your home. You're a liar. And now you've been blackmailed and you must keep the lie up and keep the lie up, keep the lie up. And that's what happens in spiritual attack. Now, let's finish here, verse 66 through 72. Peter is a case study for spiritual war. Why? Peter told Jesus, remember this, I'm going to follow you all the way to the cross. I'll never let him do it to you. And Jesus' response was, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, if you ever heard that from the Lord, I'll tell you, for at that moment right there, you know, I need to change clothes. That's how scared I might be if that was said to me. And here's what Jesus didn't say. And I told him, no, you know, I, I told him, never. No, Jesus says, when you return, after you've gotten beat up and bloodied, after you have two black eyes spiritually from falling down, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. And I want you to strengthen the brothers. Because listen, you're, gonna, you're going to be sifted. But I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to sustain you. So, so, so Peter here is going through that. Now I want to read here what happens, and I want to just point out a handful of things. Verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came out, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and, be, and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. And again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began, listen to this, the lies keep going, right? They multiply until they get so bad that what does he do? He invokes a curse on himself, swears. See, this is where lies take you. More chains, more chains, more chains. He invokes a curse on himself. I do not know the man of whom you speak, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The book of Luke actually records that at this very moment, as the rooster crows, Peter falls down to weep and looks, and they're taking Jesus out of his trial after condemning him, and they meet eyes. And he realizes what he's done. Now, I want to remind you, Peter was very bold in the garden. And you and I could be prideful here and say like, oh, not so bold. No, no, no. It's a case study that you and I need to look at to understand that this, the same way we too will go, but by the grace of God. No, what happens is oftentimes, see, Peter's ready. He's got his sword. He's girded up. He's with his boys. They've just prayed for an hour with the Lord Jesus. 
And then the most obvious full frontal attack shows up, right? It's like right in your face. The soldiers show up and, Jesus, and Peter's like, this is the moment. He's been waiting for this moment. And so he cuts a guy's ear off. Like he knows, this is what I've said. I'm going to stick to my word. There's nothing subversive about it. It's right on the surface. They want to steal Jesus from me. They want to take him and arrest him. I'm not going to let it happen. And he's bold. But hear me. The first thing that you need to know is Satan rarely, if ever, will attack you in this way. He rarely, if ever, will attack you when you feel your strongest. You just got done praying for an hour. You feel like you floated into the third heaven with Paul, got the prophecies, and now you're drinking your cup of coffee. Your kids are off to school, and you just feel totally at one with the Lord. That's not when Satan's going to show up with Las Vegas lights and soldiers to say, do you deny the Lord? That's not how it happens. I know that's how we think it's going to happen. Whatever we've conjured up in the way that we think it might happen, that's not how it will happen. No, how is Peter truly tempted? Well, first, everyone flees. And then he follows at a distance and finds himself no longer with his boys praying in the garden, no longer with Jesus, but now he's surrounded by people who hate the Lord. He's warming himself by the fire with people who have just arrested the Lord. People who have strong opinions against people like him. You see, Satan will always seek to create the climate for temptation that best suits you and best suits his devices, that you might buy into the lie or at least agree with it. Five things we see here, and I'm going to be very quick, that we should be warned against. First is temptation comes on the heels of us trusting in our flesh. Peter, with the sword, tries to fight this battle. And Jesus has already told him this is going to be a spiritual battle, Peter. Satan's going to sift you. It's not you versus the servant of the high priest. It's you versus the Lord of darkness. He's coming to sift you. Now, I want you to understand that Ty said something a couple weeks ago that you don't understand how much it's paralleled in these passages. Judas and Peter. Satan entered into the heart of Judas to do what? To cause him to betray the Lord Jesus. And then what? Jesus says, Satan has another attack angle. Who's he going after? Peter. He's going to attack Peter and sift him like wheat is sifted. I want you to go home, click go on YouTube, and see how they sift wheat. And picture yourself in there. That's what's going on with Peter. If you find yourself trusting in the flesh, what do I mean by that? I mean that you have more confidence in your ability to handle life's problems. Your ability to be faithful. Your ability on your own. Your winsomeness. Your ability to speak and say the right things, do the right things, your talents, you are being positioned for a fall. Number two, the distance from the Lord. Notice that he, Peter went from close enough to the Lord that he was literally in his inner circle praying with him to the Bible records he follows Jesus at a distance for fear of being arrested. And now Peter's in there being, or Jesus is being tried while Peter's outside. The second thing that we know is that if you find yourself at distance relationally from the Lord, you're being positioned for temptation. If you sense that within yourself, yes, maybe it's your emotions, and your emotions are a terrible compass. But if it were me, friends, I would encourage you, if you find yourself feeling distance from the Lord, to not let the day go by without falling on your knees and asking the Lord to draw you close. Number three, taking the seat with scoffers, or another way to put it would be, finding that your community is beginning to change. Peter went from being a hanging out with his friends, his disciples who loved the Lord Jesus, to now 
having mostly his conversation around the fire with the scoffers of Christ. Your community, as it begins to change, needs to alert you that you're being positioned for something. You will do things and say things and act in certain ways that you may never act if those around you, this is where as children we're peer pressured and we think as adults we've outgrown it until we obviously see that we still too are social creatures and we're more interested in being liked than honoring God. Your community matters. Number four, seeking comfort in silence and blending in with the crowd. You see, Jesus was silent in a prudent manner. He didn't have to prove himself to the trial. He didn't have to say what they wanted him to say so that he might perjure himself. But whenever they asked him directly if he was son of the blessed, he said, I am. You see, Peter's not silent here out of prudence, but he's silent here out of fear. If you find yourself caring a lot more about man's opinion than the opinion of God, you're being positioned for a temptation that's unique to that that someone's opinion might turn of you. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your friends that you really like. Maybe it's somebody that you're just building a relationship with, just building a friendship with. And you don't want that opinion, their opinion of you to change, and so you're being positioned to compromise. And it happens before the temptation ever comes that you just start realizing you care a little too much about what people think about you. You know, like you checked your Facebook a little too often to see how many likes you had. You ever notice that? Like, I didn't get as many likes on that post. I'm losing my touch. Watch yourself. Number five, observing that the only threat is to tell the truth while being deceived about what might happen if you don't tell the truth. You see, Peter's in the courtyard of the high priest. Most likely, he's hearing them put Jesus on trial. Luke tells us he sees as Peter, or as Jesus is taken out chained. They're pretty like hearing the slap on Jesus' face, prophesy, son of man, they're mocking him. Ever present is the threat of what might happen if I tell the truth. But you notice what the enemy's done to Peter? It's totally blinded him from the dangers of lying. That's not even present. There's nothing there. It's like it's all comfort, baby. If you lie, you get to stay by the fire. <laughs> if you lie and say you're, you're not with him, then you just get to hang out with these people. But if you tell the truth, that's what you're going to get. The climate around you will be conditioned to tempt you the most effectively. Notice there'll be threats against the flesh, also tantalizing desire at the same time. So, hey, do this because it'll be better this way. And then also, if you don't, this is what might happen to you. All of this is swirling around. That's why this is such an unjust and evil moment. I have to close with this. But the main thing in the passage the most glorious thing in the passage is not all the warnings, but it's that as every character in this story falls under the spell of darkness, there was one that stood and did not. I want you to notice every character, Judas who betrays the Lord Jesus, Peter who denies the Lord Jesus, the disciples who run away scared, the Pharisees who put him on a false trial, the false witnesses who lie for money, the soldiers who are just following orders, all of them fall under the spell of darkness. And then, and then there's the hero. It's Christ Jesus, the Lord who conquers. He stands in the truth. He says the truth. He takes the beating that comes along with it. He stands in our place 
for our sins, and it could not have happened any other way. Friends, it had to happen that everyone was on one side, and yet King Jesus stood alone so that he could die in our place. It doesn't happen that there's just a bunch of people that came alongside Jesus and they joined and went arm in arm and said, I'll die with you. That's not how our gospel reads. Our gospel reads that he went alone because there was only one man that was ever sinless, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. There's no one like Christ. And I say this why? Because, friends, there's no silver bullet for you and I to overcome temptation except one. Book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us this about temptation. And then I'll pray. I'll wait till it comes up. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, Christ is the ark, the way of escape that helps us to withstand temptation. If you're in the room right now and you say, I, I, I know that that's me. I know I found myself there. Friends, you can be in this moment like Judas or like Peter. There's really only one difference, and it's coming to Christ who has conquered and saying, will you have me back? Will you have me back? This reminds me of the Narnia story, right? Edmund, who comes back as a traitor, and what? Aslan receives him back, stands in his place, goes to the stone table, killed by the white witch. This is all point. It's Christ who died for us. He defeated the hour of darkness so that you and I can fight it with any sort of fidelity. We have our strength in him, our victories in him. And so my prayer this morning is that we would run to him our way of escape, run into the door of the ark. The rock of age is cleft for us. Hide ourselves, refuge ourselves in Christ Jesus and sing the praises of the one who defeated the power of darkness on our behalf. Let me pray and then we'll take it to the Lord's table. Father, I thank you, my God, that in our weakness, you are made strong. That just as Peter found himself in an instant, both bold and ready, and weak and feeble, that we can find ourselves there, Lord, and yet you love us, and yet you have promised to strengthen us, to restore us, if we would but call upon your name. And so we do now. Jesus, would you restore us to yourself? Help us to hide ourselves in you. Help us to run to you as our way of escape. God, let us be honest with you and with one another about our frailties so that we might not be blackmailed by the enemy. Help us to reject lies that we might live in truth. And most of all, as we take of your supper, help us to be nourished by the body of Christ broken for us. Help us to be satisfied by the blood of Christ shed for us. And most of all, help us to be confident that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that Satan's lies have no power over us because you have won. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.